In September 1921, a small group of mountaineers, members of a British-funded expedition, reached a ridge high in the Tibetan Himalayas. Rising before them was the greatest mountain of them all, Chomolungma to the Tibetans, Sagarmatha to the neighbouring Nepalese, and Mount Everest to this group of explorers. The expedition was led by Charles Howard Bury, an Irish veteran of the First World War. Its goal was to create the first maps of the mountain. Bury's life and the landmark 1921 reconnaissance mission that he led are the subject of an online exhibition called We Had Experience of Wonderful Moments. It's part of Westmeath County Council's Decade of Centenaries programme and you can find it at everest1921.com. To talk about it, I'm joined now by two guests. Frank Nugent is an experienced mountaineer, explorer and expedition leader in his own right, one of the lead climbers in the first Irish expedition, a successful Irish expedition to uh, Everest in 1993. He's also an author who wrote about Bury in his 2013 book In Search of Peaks, Passes and Glaciers, Irish Alpine Pioneers. Also here with me is Ian Kennelly, historian in residence for Westmeath County Council, who researched and designed the exhibition. You're both very welcome indeed uh, to the History Show. Um, Ian, tell me a bit about Bury's background. He was, you know, he was part of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy. Why is he of any interest in Westmeath? Uh, he's of interest in Westmead because he spent much or most of his life there in Belvedere House. He was born in London, but his parents' normal place of residence was in Offaly, Charleville Castle near Burr. And he grew up there, uh, educated by a German governess. His family also uh, had a connection to Belvedere House which he inher- near Mullingar, which he inherited in 1912. And subsequent to the expedition in 1921 to Everest and his political career in the UK, he settled in uh, Belvedere House and lived there for the remainder of his life. And at what point, Frank, did he essentially become an explorer? Was it when he first travelled to Tibet or had he been involved uh, in climbing or expeditions before that? Yeah, he'd been involved from a very young age. His mother had a, a, a chalet in the Dolomites, so he would have went there for his holidays. And, of course, his guardian, his father died when he was age three. So his, his guardian was Lord Lansdowne, who was uh, Petty, uh, Fitzmaurice, Petty Fitzmaurice. Yeah, F- yeah. Fitzmaurice. And he was, at that stage, Fitzmaurice was the governor of Canada. And he was, shortly afterwards, became the viceroy of India. And, of course, he, he ended up being in various portfolios in the British government's foreign minister and minister without portfolio during World War One, and he was a, a confidant of uh, George the Seventh. so they were wealthy. And he um, owns a lot of land in Ireland, the family still does. But th- that business of travelling, it was in the blood and service to the emperor was in the blood. So after his governess in Tullamore, he went to Eton and from Eton to Sandhurst. And he was following a line from, obviously, uh, Lansdowne was his mentor. And, of course, he, and he went to India then with the 7th and 9th rifle. That was his battalion. And every piece of leave he got, he went travelling. He, he was very good at picking up languages. He, he was a very intelligent man. And uh, he, he acquired lots of the various Indian dialects. And he was very interested in religions, Buddhism, in particular, he was interested in. And as a result, he went, he went to visit most of the great shrines and he, he went disguised to Mount Kaliash. He, he smuggled himself into Tibet while he was a, a, a captain in the 
and he got re- reprimanded. He, wasn't let go anywhere for six months after because I mean, at that time you couldn't just wander into no, Nepal no. or Tibet and say oh I think I'll climb that one over there you know what, what had happened uh, England our young husband had actually gone into Tibet and in fact they slaughtered people at Lhasa a very Im- infamous event and they were trying to increase their influence out there so there was a it was a good tug of war going on between the Russians and the Chinese and the British over Tibet but the the Tibetans were trying to keep them all out mm. you know, unsuccessfully. And Ian, what was his first World War experience yeah. like? He, uh, as Frank said, he was with the 7th and 9th uh, King's Royals Rifles. He was at the Western Front uh, throughout the, the whole of the war, pretty much. He uh, was at Ypres, the Somme. He was uh, in the German Spring Offensive of 1918. Again, he was at the front and he ended up being captured uh, by the German army uh, as they broke through the line in many places ended up spending the remainder of the war as a as a prisoner of war. He made numerous, or he was party to, and eventually made his own escape from captivity. He could speak German, and in his escape, he remained free in Germany for a week uh, before he was eventually uh, recaptured and remained in, in prison until December of 1918, and then he returned to, to uh, civilian life, so to speak. Let's return to Everest itself. I mean, I always think that, you know, we should we should stop calling it Everest. Mm. We should call it Chamalungma or Sagarmatha because they're much more evocative names. I mean, Mount Everest itself is called after somebody who was basically a complete non-entity. He was a surveyor. He called himself George Everest. Everest, right. He he was highly insulted when people start calling it Everest. He was a civil servant. In fairness to him, he he wasn't responsible for the Mount of being called after him. He was his successor, actually, nominated... Because when they when they discovered that Everest was the highest mountain, they did it from by trigonometry mm. from the uh, Indian plateau. So it was actually measured from a couple of points, and they weren't allowed into Nepal or Tibet. So as a result, they said they didn't know local names for it, which well, you know it was but false. they obviously chose the Royal Geographical Society. They they named it in eighteen sixty five after George Everest. Mm. And I mean, one of the things Ian also about Howard Bury was he had he had money. He was able to self fund. Yeah. How important was that when it came to organising or taking part in expeditions? This that was vital because that, you know we've just spoken earlier about the amount of land he owned. He was exceedingly wealthy, which meant that he could he funded his own expedition in 1913 along the northern edge of the Tian Shan Mountains, for example. So in 1921, it had long been a dream of uh, British explorers to reach Everest. And as you said, they couldn't enter the country because the Tibetans kept a close uh, guard onto who could uh, enter and who could uh, traverse through the country. Howard Bury was able to say to the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club in London, who who needed the funds, look, I can fund my own, I can fund leadership of this exhibition and effectively bankroll it. Now, not entirely. They also funded it through signing media rights with uh, news agencies and with the Times in London and so on. But Howard Bury's wealth and his experience as a soldier and as an explorer were vital to the exhibition that came about. And his interest in religion and in botany. He was a terrific botanist and his ability as a photographer. They all come together. His contribution, I mean, it's easy to say all... They picked him because he had the money, but he he had the wherewithal, he had the intelligence and he had the motivation to do it and to make sure. It was very interesting if you read about it. When he discovered the person he needed to speak to was in Sikkim, he organised Porter straight away. 
crossed a 14,000 foot pass to meet him in Sikkim and then convinced him the importance scientifically of this exhibition, the importance of um, mapping the approaches. It was now that it was termed the third pole because at that mm-hmm. stage they actually thought the other two poles had been reached. But uh, a couple of Americans had actually disguised the fact that they hadn't reached the North Pole at the time. <laughs> but it turned out that an Amundsen had just reached it, the South Pole. And the British were very aggrieved about the South Pole. Of course. Uh, and they thought they regarded Everest as being in their corner of the world mm. and that nobody else. So they wanted to be the first, the British, to get there. Uh, you know, you know well uh, when they, when you talk about the expedition, all the talk is about oh, there were seven or eight people on the expedition, which of course is total rubbish. There were dozens mm. on the expedition. Who else, in addition to this core group of Europeans, would have been involved? Guides, porters, all of that. There was uh, there was a survey team. There was the, the main survey team, and there was uh, there was two survey teams, and one of them was was run by a guy called Gunjar Singh. So he had Indian uh, surveyors with him. So you're talking, you have got your essential. Group group of eight men then you have another eight or so uh, Indian surveyors then you also have uh, Tibetan uh, interpreters there was two guys in particular a guy called Chetan Wangdi and a guy called Kazi who were vital uh, to the exhibition's success and then you have the porters and Sherpas uh, Tibetans and Nepalese so the, whole, the, the entire group was probably around 50 people mm. but as Frank would tell you this was the, I think Frank they were the first group to ever use the Nepalese Sherpas oh yeah, yeah. There, there were so many first I mean, I mean it's very easy to reduce Howard Bury's achievement down to, you know, he made a map, you know. They did so many things right. He came back and advised that climbing during the monsoon is crazy. The, mm. the right window is from March to the approach of the monsoon yeah. or post-monsoon. There's a window there as well. He also advised that the Sherpa Boatius from Nepal would make the best. Now, he got that advice from Bell, who was the guy he went to meet in Sikkim, who advised me, if you're going to hire a porter, make sure you get the guys from Solo Kumbu. And he actually, they spent time before the expedition to recruit those very porters. And as a result, the Sherpa have become the, the guides of Everest, really. Even though they're on the far side on of far, the mountain, the side, so it's yeah, no yeah. easy job. No easy job from Darjeeling to, yeah, yeah. to, to, to get them there. The side of the mountain, I mean, what, what he would have mapped is what you faced in yeah. 1993. Well, the most interesting about it was that the, ma- the guy who did the exact map of Everest is a, a fellow called Oliver Wheeler. And he, he again, he, he was Canadian, or, but his father came from Maddox down in County Kilkenny. And interestingly, his father went to Dulwich College, which is the same college that Shackleton went. Mm. But he emigrated when he was about 17 to Canada and he became an expert in photogeometry. And as a result, he ended up mapping the Rockies. And as a result of that, got very involved in mountaineering and became a founder member of the Canadian Alpine Club. So his son, Oliver, again, he, he was involved in the First World War. He was a captain in the Canadians. And, of course, he fought with the, the Indian troops as well as, as Bury. But he ended up uh, getting a job with the Indian survey. So he was one of the surveyors that turned up. The, Howard Bury negotiated with the Indian survey that they would supply the surveyors. One of them would do the exact photogeometry of Everest itself. The other guy would do a brand new map of Tibet. They had no, no map. They had no survey ever done in Tibet. And another group of them would, would resurvey Sikkim. So the Indian survey came out of that very, very well off because they now had two geographical areas, Sikkim 
and Tibet mapped in a way they never had. And the price of it was something like half a rupee or something per square mile, it turned out, when they worked it out afterwards. It was an amazing piece of economics. <laughs> and the only way they would have got that permission was on the back of Everest. And uh, so they managed to do a lot with it. Ian, it was it was a fairly long it was a long expedition, mm. and uh, you know the kind of gear that Frank would have been wearing in 1993 didn't exist no. back in the early 1920s. So I mean, I suppose they were there at a time of year when the the weather is is quite mild. Actually, I mean, it's a, it's quite a pleasant place to be at that time of the year. But still, you know, uh, dressed in suits and ties and yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, George Bernard Shaw saw a picture. There's the famous picture of eight of the members lined up, and he said it was like a picnic party going to Connemara. <laughs> So you know, it's tweeds and woolen jackets. And there's one I, Guy Bullock, who was one of the climbers, he said at one stage they were in a very bad position on the North Call, I think, and they were facing really inclement conditions. But he felt OK because he had three pairs of woolen long johns on. So, yeah. <laughs> How high did they actually go? They didn't just go to what we think of now as base no, camp. No, they actually got to the North Call. They, got to, they climbed to the North Call. They got three of the climbers and three Sherpas. And the interesting thing about it, the Sherpas led the way. And, and previous to them actually climbing on the thing, Mallory had given these Sherpas lessons in climbing. They climbed the mountain called Ring Ring Ree, which is one of the mountains. It's sort of between the Rongbuk Glacier and that. But in climbing that, he was actually teaching them how to use ice axes, whatever. But they became so confident that they ended up out ahead and they, they led the, the way up. OK, you mention an evocative name. Yeah. Uh, George Lee Mallory. Yes. Explain where he comes in, uh, comes into to all of this. Well, M- Mallory was probably the, the great English climber of the pre-war period. And he, he hung over a fellow called uh, Geoffrey Winthrop. There was a set they used to go to Wales every Easter. And in fact, our friend, the guy around Conor O'Brien, he ran guns into Kilcool. He was a friend of his. And it was interesting, if there was a difference between Mallory and, and Howard Bury, it was on Ireland. Mallory was much more sympathetic towards the Irish home rule and <laughs> Irish freedom. Than the Anglo-Irish Bureau the Anglo- was. The yeah. landowner was going to be. So it was actually quite interesting. But, but Mallory we, was the lead climber on that. He was the lead climber. Yeah, on the he, exp- he, 21 expedition. He went to Cambridge. He, he wasn't wealthy. His father was actually a, a, a preacher. And he, he was a school teacher in Winchester College. That, that was his job at the time he was going on Everest. But he was, a bit, was probably the top climber. We're going to the Alps every year and putting up the, doing the big routes, etc. Mm. So he goes back in goes 22, back. goes back in 24. We'll talk about the okay. 24 expedition in a, in a moment, and mm. I'll ask you both the obvious, the obvious question. But the title of the exhibition, Ian, comes from Mallory. We had experience of wonderful moments. Yeah, there was an official narrative produced within a year of the... And it's very well written, really succinct, and Howard Bury provides most of it. But there's also um, sections written by Mallory and... Uh, Bullock and some of the other guys. Mallory had a great turn of phrase, so I just thought it was a, a good uh, title for the exhibition. And also Mallory, there was a difference. Howard Bury was really goal-orientated. He just wanted to fulfil the mission, whereas Mallory was more, he wanted to go off in tangents and explore this ridge and that ridge. And that was another bone of contention mm. between the two men. OK, now Mallory obviously famously died uh, with, with Irvin on Everest in 1924, which was the first, I suppose, really serious uh, attempt to, to scale the peak. And there's still a question mark over whether or not he actually achieved 
the first, either of them achieved the first descent, uh, many theories speculating and uh, continued research into it. So $64,000 question, I'll start with you. Do you think either of them made the the peak, the summit? Well, they, they had an oxygen system and we don't know to, to what extent it worked, you know. So they... They were seen disappearing were seen into the disappearing. clouds. I, I, was, How close to, uh, uh, well, they, were they, they from? They, they would have been uh, around the second step was where they were seen. Mm. So if they got up the second step, they went to the top, you know. And now, there's no reason to believe that Mallory, as the, the sort of climber he was, that he wouldn't have got up. That so It was a question of whether he had the oxygen. If the oxygen system worked, he probably did go up, you know. Mm. And I like to think he, he got there. Everybody yeah. likes to think. I know that. There. But <laughs> Sandy Irvin had a brownie camera and uh, we haven't found his body. Mm. His body hasn't been found. But was the found. camera not found? No. The camera hasn't been no, found. Hasn't okay, been Mallory's found. body has, has been, been was found, found a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, and his and But a few, uh, Irvin is still missing, no, so. There's a good chance Irvin might have fallen down the other side, you know, the Kangshun side, you know. It's hard to know. But if his body is ever uncovered and he ever finds the camera, there's a possibility that the we film would still be intact. Yeah. Yeah. Or there could even be a diary with something written there, you wouldn't yeah. know. But there, there has, there's no hard evidence that he actually got there or not. What's your hunch, Ian? Frank has convinced me that they probably did, but <laughs> I, I can't say for certain. Yeah, nobody can say for certain. Yeah, everybody except uh, Sir Edmund Hillary obviously wants yeah. to believe Well, he they did got say there. that well, you know, well, coming down alive was really the yeah, test. Yeah, no, getting up <laughs> is one thing. Everybody, more, far more people die on the way yeah. down than die well, on the way up. What is important is that their main quest was to find the most feasible route to climb Everest. They chose that what's now known as the Mallory Ridge, which is the Northeast Ridge and the North Ridge. So they reached the North Call, that's 23,000 feet, in uh, 1921. They went back in 22, and there was, uh, I think, seven Sherpas died in an avalanche. And the, the real tragedy of it was that the, none of the Sahibs were killed. Yeah. It was only Sherpas. So that, Sherpas yeah. was a, it was a real shocker, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Mallory uh, had to overcome all of that and he went back in 24 and as I said they had a, they had a go and we, we don't we don't know for sure but the route the Mallory route is now proven to be the most feasible route mm. so in a way they, they were 100% the, the map they produced was unbelievable and Wheeler's work the photo geometry he produced and the effort that went into producing that map because he had to have good photographs so it meant uh, you could only photograph one out of maybe three or four days. They've missed and you wouldn't be able to picture. So he had to hang around there and his team of that support his porter. At the age of six, I had decided that I was going to uh, Mount Everest. And I didn't actually get there for another 40 years or so. Uh, but <clears throat> the reason I was fascinated and wanted to go to Everest at the age of six was to search for a very famous mm. uh, creature of folklore, namely the Yeti, the abominable, the abominable snowman. Yeah. Who started? I mean, th- this is the time yeah. that that whole uh, mythos basically began and captured my imagination 30 or, well, sorry, 40, 40 odd years later. Uh, there was a guy, the, the story, it's, it's pretty well attested. There was a journalist uh, based in uh, what was then Calcutta, Henry Newman, who had uh, produced features for magazines, newspapers and the Reuters News Agency. Uh, and one, one of the things I said earlier that the trip was partly funded by these media rights with deals with the newspapers. Howard Bury, even though he was in Tibet, was sending regular dispatches. Now, there was about a three week lapse before they got back to Europe. Regular dispatches from the, from the expedition. And in one of these, he mentioned that they were at uh, an area called Lac Pala, up about 6,500 yeah. metres, Frank. Yeah? Yeah. And they found these tracks in the snow. 
and they were unusual, uh, large, not any identifiable. And the, the Nepalese Sherpas with uh, Hardbury said these are the what they call the Mito Kangami and uh, this wild man that lives in the snow. And that word came back, Howard Bury sent that word back as part of his uh, uh, dispatches, and this new man picked up on this phrase, and he translated it, seemingly mistranslated it, as dirty snowman, filthy snowman. He thought, that's not really a memorable phrase. He came up with, hey, abominable snowman. (laughs) And uh, the Times in London started printing this extraordinary series of articles Crazy murderers, crazy hairy murderers was one of the stories, you know, and then one of them had uh, the subtitle Abominable Snowman. And that seems to have grabbed people's attention. I would, uh, yeah, you would understand yeah, why it would grab people and, and, and has, <laughs> so, has done. So Howard Bure is responsible for the Yeti. Yeah, yeah for the, for the, for the, for Finding the, for the Yeti. And I mean, sure. Frank, do you reckon that the Sherpas actually believed this story or they were just having a bit of fun with Howard Bury? No, well, I think what basically happens is if you if you got a small, a claw of a small border animal, it, it will tie out in the, in the sun during the day and it becomes bigger. Yeah, expands. And it, yeah. You know, that sort of technically explains what probably happened. But, uh, yeah, they did believe. And all mountain peoples, if you actually go into European, the European Alps, they all believed in wild people. I think parents used to threaten kids with, don't go out yeah. up in the mountain. There's animals, there wild men up there. Not, would not, eat just, you. not just in the yeah, Himalayas, every, by the way, over, in Ireland, they used over, to do the same over. thing. Around the world, <laughs> mountains of the world, there's all there's similar yeah, uh, the, the, the abominable someone for a period took over from the boogeyman, basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much. Anyway, OK, listen, uh, thank you very much, uh, both Pleasure. of you, for, for coming in, for joining us this evening to talk about Charles Howard Bury and his historic expedition. That's Ian Kennelly and Frank Nugent. And uh, that Westmeath County Council Decade of Centenaries uh, programme, which is online, the exhibition We Had Experience of Wonderful Moments, is at everest1921.com. Mm-hmm.